0: And there's a reason why I often interview photographers about their personal projects. Not only do I think it will provide a good point from which to start a conversation, but because it's an essential part of any photographer's career. The majority of work that most professionals produce is assignment work and helps pay the bills. But the best personal projects are born from a more intimate and passionate space. These aren't photographs that need to be made, they have to be made. Sometimes it's over weeks or months, sometimes it's years. Sarah Hadley has been working on her project on Venice, Italy for over a decade. And her new book, Lost Venice, is the culmination of all that effort. The photographs are a very subjective interpretation of the city, and doesn't resemble the typical postcard images you've likely seen. It's a collection that is as much about love and loss as it is transformation.
1: I think that it just took me a long time to really figure out what the, the the meat of it was and the heart of it was. You know, Venice is also so blindingly beautiful in a way, and I resisted making a project for so long because... There are a million photographers there, and it's so over photographed. I shouldn't say over photographed; it's photographed, but you know, because it's beautiful. So to make something that was deeply personal, that really felt like it resonated with what I wanted to say, and kind of was reminiscent of my time there, which was a long time ago. I mean, that's the third sort of loss: is that Venice is doesn't look like what I portrayed it to look like now it's a very idealized version of venice it's the 80s version as they said of, of when you, you could walk around and there would be nobody on the streets that's hardly the case anymore
0: we'll talk to sarah about working on a project for over 10 years as well as her unusual upbringing growing up in a museum this is ebody x and welcome back to the Candid frame Well, welcome. Good to have you.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Congratulations on the book. Thank you. I know you've been working on this for a while, so it's...
1: Yeah. The project I've been working on for a long time. The book only a couple of years, so yeah.
0: Yeah. But that's quite a leap, though, when you go from working on the project to going, okay, I'm going to make a physical manifestation of that. Yeah. All completely different skill set, which we'll, we'll talk about. I wanted to start off with part of your story, which you have some very interesting elements that I wanted to learn more about. And and one of them is the fact that you lived in a museum, and I think a lot of kids growing up would love the idea of like living in a castle. And living in a museum is about as close as I, I think, anybody I know of, has ever gotten. So you got to tell me about how did it come to be that you were living in a museum for a good part of your childhood.
1: Um My father was the director of the Gardner Museum in Boston. He was the assistant director and then the director retired. Um, and Mrs. Gardner had built an apartment over at the museum as her own living quarters. and that always went to the director. And so we moved in when I was four. and we moved out when I was twenty three. And we were the last wow. last family to live there. So they turned it into offices after we were there.
0: That must have been really interesting as compared to how all the other friends were living. When did you first get the sense that, oh, the, I am living a very different life than most of my friends are?
1: That's such a good question because, you know, when you're four, you just, everything seemed, you know, normal. I the, Where I lived was where I lived. But... I got the sense early on because people's, my friend's parents were really interested in it. Mm-hmm. You know, my friends could have cared less where I lived or what my life was like, but my uh, my friend's parents always wanted to talk to me about where I lived. And so I was sort of the little girl who lived in the museum. And that's kind of, you know, they would say, oh, you know, talk to me about it. So
0: Sounds like a title for a children's book.
1: It does sound like that. <laughs> I know. I'm working on. I'm working on a project about the museum right now. I'm not sure how it's going to manifest. So,
0: so, describe to me because to hear, oh, you lived in a museum is one thing. But could you describe to me what I, let's say we, I walk through the front door with you. What would I have seen coming in?
1: Well, so in order to get to our apartment, first of all, you had to walk through a bunch of guards. You had to go through the guards desk in order to come into the museum, you know, the side entrance where the staff would have come in, uh, where they do come in. And they knew us, of course. And so we would take an elevator up to the fourth floor. Sometimes we had to walk when there were concerts because we were, we were not allowed to use the elevator. <laughs> it was a long walk. And you'd walk in the front door. There was a, We had a TV room in the front room, you know, pretty normal looking, and a kitchen and a pantry and a dining room. And then it was... It was big. It was a, it was a big apartment. Let's just say that. It was probably I'm not sure in square footage, but there were probably 25 rooms in the apartment. Wow. There were six bathrooms and five bedrooms and it was it was huge. And I was a kid so I would run from one end of the apartment to the other. It, it surrounded a courtyard. So, um, oh, okay. the whole museum surrounds a courtyard. So you would walk into our apartment, and then you would, after you went through the dining room, you would be able to look down into the courtyard, and then you would see, basically, visitors in the museum. If they were there, the museum was open. You would see into the courtyard, and there were sculptures in the courtyard, headless sculptures, sarcophaguses.
0: <laughs> I always tell
1: people it was a bit like growing up in an Edward Gorey story. Wow.
0: So you are surrounded by artwork.
1: Surrounded by artwork, our apartment had artwork certainly, but not much that was of any huge value. Um, We had some of the rooms were still the way she had furnished them, Mrs. Gardner. So the dining room was her dining room table, and the wallpaper was her wallpaper, and there was a fireplace and and some lovely things. And there was a living room that she had. Uh, There was a piano in there, and another fireplace, and things like that. But you know, other rooms were just left open, and you know, my bedroom was apparently the sewing room which I just recently found out but it was just in a small room and I had posters on the walls and you know like a normal kid.
0: Where did her wealth come from?
1: I'm terrible about remembering exactly where her wealth came from but she what she came from a very wealthy family in New York and married one of the wealthiest families in Boston, the Gardeners. It was around the turn of the century. So she was married probably in the 1870s, 1880s. Mm -hmm. um, And she lived until about 1922. And her husband died and she decided they had been collecting art for a while in their house in Boston, and she decided to build this museum. They had decided together, but he died, and then she went ahead and built the museum and called it after herself, which I find really interesting.
0: Must be nice. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know what I could name after myself that would last.
1: (laughs) I think that was it. She wanted a legacy. She really did. She wanted something that was permanent. And it's a really extraordinary museum, so I haven't described it well enough to say it's a a courtyard full of flowers as well as sculpture. And she had concerts three times a year. I mean, three times a week. And she loved music and she loved art and she loved flowers. Mm -hmm. And so you would walk in out of a cold Boston day into this Basically oasis. The courtyard is covered. It's got its glassed over. So any time of year, it's in full bloom and they have a, actually a separate facility where they keep plants that they're growing for the courtyard. So they keep them always in bloom. And it's, she brought over piece by piece the entire museum, almost the entire museum, I should say, from Europe. So it's uh, Venetian balconies around the central courtyard that were brought from a palazzo in Venice and the floors and the ceilings and the wallpaper and the walls and, of course, all the art and furniture and furnishings.
0: Wow. I hope I get a chance to see this place. It sounds amazing.
1: It is pretty amazing.
0: So when did you start thinking that you had an interest in the arts in terms of yourself? You grew up being surrounded by it, but when did you think, well, maybe this is something I'd like to try my hand at it?
1: Uh, It wasn't until college, actually, which is pretty funny. I did actually paint and draw in high school a bit and took photographs. Um, I was an art history major, actually, in college. I decided to study art history. There wasn't an art major at my college, um, but I did take painting and drawing classes, and I started doing photography then. It's funny, I I hated going to museums when I was a kid. I was dragged through hundreds and hundreds of them (laughs) by my parents, of course. And, uh, you know, I remember saying to my dad, if you've seen one cathedral, you've seen them all. And I really did not, you know, it didn't occur to me that that was a path I was going to pursue. But I suppose it was inevitable. So
0: So why did you choose art history as opposed to English letter or... It's funny. I
1: went to my first, uh, I took a class in art history, I think my freshman year. And I just thought it was actually really enjoyable. And and I loved looking at the slides, you know, in the dark and writing papers about them. And I thought, this is great. You know, this is what I'd like to major in. And of course, my parents were very supportive. So that was, you know, another thing. So when,
0: the, when did a catalyst happen where you felt like, you no know, I want to, I actually want to create it rather than just research it?
1: So as soon as you said, I mean, I started taking photographs um, seriously probably in my mid-20s, but, uh, or not, I'm oh, sorry, early 20s, but I, I just, dis- I was working in museums a lot and I really wanted to make the art, not just look at it and, and talk about it and think about it. I, I knew I wanted to create it. So I had painted, as they said, for a long time, and taken photographs. And so I went back to school and and studied photography at 25.
0: And you started uh, working in newspapers?
1: I did, yeah. Community newspapers? I stepped out of art school and got a job at a small newspaper in Virginia that actually ran 10 sort of very small community newspapers. And I photographed for them for... About a year and a half. And I, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a little crazy. I I shot football and pet parades and openings of Um, businesses and and whatever was needed. Um, It was very different than art school. I had to learn how to actually, you know, take pictures that told stories.
0: Very different Mm -hmm. from, yeah, from just taking a nice pretty picture. Yeah. So what was the hardest part about that?
1: I actually would walk into the darkroom every Monday with a handful of film that not only I had taken over the weekend but also staff writers had taken with instant you know they had instant cameras or mm-hmm. what you know point and shoots I never even cut the negatives up, but we would just string it through the the, the uh, enlarger. Oh yeah, I, we was on yeah, deadlines so much, and I would be there till midnight in a dark room, basically printing. And the other terrifying thing was football because it was at night, so I always was terrified if I actually got a shot, I would push that <laughs> film. <laughs> I would push that film so far to make sure that Uh-oh. I got something.
0: And I was working on the college paper, that was one thing I didn't have to shoot was sports, because that was the least thing I wanted to shoot. And and at least community college and high school football, the stadiums are lit so poorly.
1: So poorly lit. Uh,
0: so people who shoot it now are kind of lucky, because mm-hmm. they have digital cameras where they can ramp up the ISO. and.
1: Oh, yeah. It, it's completely different now. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, so how did you end up in Venice?
1: I went to Venice with my parents when I was younger, and uh, I always enjoyed it. But when I was about 20, I wasn't really in love with being in college, and I, my dad suggested that I apply for an internship at the Guggenheim Museum there, the Peggy Guggenheim, which has a rolling internship to this day, where you can go and live in Venice for a couple of months, and they pay you to actually sort of run the museum. And so I tried it off to Venice in the fall of what should have been my junior year. And I say I had the happiest three months of my life mm. uh, surrounded by art and also surrounded by artists. It was the first time I'd really been with people who also really appreciated art and who were making art. I was the youngest. I was 21. And they... People sort of ranged in age from 20 to 30. Some were doing PhDs, and some were working artists. Some had just graduated from college, and they were from all over the world. So it was a really incredible and magical time.
0: So it was it the the diversity in terms of where people were from, their age, the different ways that they were involved in art as compared to what you were experiencing in college?
1: Yeah, and as I said, my college was not really centered around the arts, so uh, I probably just had never been surrounded by this many people who were interested in art, and also to be in Venice, which was uh, in the it was the late '80s, pretty magical. I mean, by the time November rolled around, it was the place was ours. You know, nobody else was on the streets, and we felt like you know we owned it. Basically, um, you could wander around at midnight and and hardly see a soul. It was really beautiful.
0: So. You started taking pictures there a little more seriously?
1: I did, yeah. So that's when I really started taking pictures. And uh, I had a really old, funny Russian 35-millimeter camera. And I started taking pictures and developing them in a darkroom. Um, I started working for the school newspaper as well, a little bit, and uh, and got to use their darkroom.
0: So how did you start seeing differently as a result of, of being in Venice? Because you talked about you know shooting for the newspapers, and there you're you know, looking to meet a deadline, tell a story with a singular picture, maybe two, but... What you started doing in Venice was demonstrably different.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, if you're talking about the book pictures, they're, they came much later. So mm-hmm. uh, when I was shooting then in Venice, I have photographs of them, but they're not, I would not say, extraordinary pictures in, in any regard. I did start just seeing light and, and architecture and shadow. And I was shooting black and white and understand, starting to understand how that worked. But it wasn't until after I'd gone back to school and really studied photography longer did i begin to understand how to create photographs that meant something and really resonated
0: what ties you to that city i mean there's you know there are a lot of places that people go to when they're young
1: mm.
0: you know especially like in a the kind of situation where you're in college and you get 3 months or 6 months in some foreign land and yeah, you have, you have a good time and you come back and you never really think of revisiting it but for you it seems to have been a very impressionable time for you, why, why?
1: I think it was because it reminded me of the gardener. So, you know, Lost Venice is sort of, the, the title is uh, is threefold. There's the loss of my father who died when I was 25 and who actually loved Venice as well. And there's the loss of my childhood home. So when I moved out of that house, uh, that was sort of Venice. In It, it looks like, a, the interior looks like a Venetian palazzo, basically. So Venice was very familiar to me when I, even when I went there, it really felt, uh, it was somewhere Mrs. Gardner spent a great deal of her time and that she really loved and she collected uh not just the artifacts but she also collected art from venice and and there's a lot of pictures of venice in the museum
0: so did your father pass away before you went to venice or
1: no he he passed away after
0: after yeah so
1: the first time i'd gone no he didn't pass away for a couple yeah for a little while longer after we moved out of the museum
0: there's a story that you tell about the I think you were photographing Venice and you saw a man crossing a bridge mm-hmm. that, that reminded you of your father. Mm-hmm. Tell me about why that why that moment made such an impression on you.
1: So I went back really with the intention of making a project. This is in 2006 and I hadn't been to Venice in probably 10 or 15 years and it was I was out in the mist and I saw this man who looked so much like my father crossing this bridge and I just couldn't it was just like seeing a ghost it was pretty amazing and I actually followed him sort of like the Sophie Kyle thing and she you know followed him from down the streets for mm-hmm. a while but it was really the first picture of him that uh, was became the seed of the project
0: and what do you see in that picture that made you feel like it was that
1: I think it was this strange thing that my father died in his sleep of a heart attack and i never saw him and if i don't know if you've ever had somebody die all of a sudden on you it's it's as if they're there one minute and then they're mm-hmm. gone and and they literally just disappear he vanished from yeah. my life and so i think to see him and to see the mist and to see this place that he knew and and that we had been to together was just uh, kind of extraordinary kind of uh, the confluence of those things
0: yeah, I, I went through that with my dad because when he passed away, he was in Dominican Republic because there was no embalming services anywhere close. Basically, the next day he was buried. And I, I missed the f- funeral and the internment by probably three or four hours or something like that. So, you know, my last, my, la- I, my I saw him probably a week before, before he left. And then I talked to him on the phone and that was the last time. So yeah, like yeah, you said, he's it's there one really moment strange. and then he's gone.
1: Yeah, and you're sort of left with this wondering, like, will I ever see them again? You know, it just sort of they they disappear, and you it's you're left kind of not knowing what to, you know. Who, you know, how to grieve. I mean, you understand now why sort of Catholics have this open casket and you see the person and you mm-hmm. kind of have this moment where you can say goodbye to them in a way. Not that I'm advocating open caskets, but I'm sort yeah. of saying even just the ceremony of having a funeral, the same, you have a moment where you actually can sort of say goodbye. Yeah, when you leave somebody that quickly, it's it's hard.
0: Yeah. Sometimes when I'm working on something, I don't necessarily intellectualize it in terms of oh i'm doing it for this and such reason but it seems like from what i've read and and just sitting down with you that this is sort of a book about to a certain degree inspired by loss one the palpable loss of your father and then the loss of the place that you sort of grew up with and that it was a way of sort of reigning some control over something that was completely out of your hands um I don't know, but I kind of, you know, since you've lived with this for so long, have you given any thought as to beyond being, being able to create a beautiful body of work, you know, what was propelling it? Because you spent a good amount of time working on this.
1: Oh, it's interesting you say, I just think I'm very slow at working. I, really, you know? I mean, I remember I went to an artist uh, a residency 10 years ago, and somebody there said, oh, I've been working on a project for 10 years. And I thought, oh, my God. And then, you know, here I am, fast forward 10 years. You know, I've worked on other projects as well, but this one's sort of always been there. I think that it just took me a long time to really figure out what the 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 meat of it was and the heart of it was, and how to get there through. You know, Venice is also so blindingly beautiful in a way, and so it's and and I resisted taking. Or making a project for so long because there are a million photographers yeah. there and it's so over photographed. I shouldn't say over photographed, it's photographed, but you know, because it's beautiful. So to make something that was deeply personal, that really felt like it resonated with what I wanted to say and kind of was reminiscent of my time there, which was a long time ago. I mean, that's the third sort of loss is that Venice is, doesn't look like what I portrayed it to look yeah. like now it it's that's a it's a very idealized version of venice it's the 80s version as they said of, of when you, you could walk around and there would be nobody on the streets that's hardly the case anymore
0: yeah yeah and just the last couple of weeks when they had the flooding i was thinking of you
1: yeah and uh
0: it was it was heartbreaking it to, is heartbreaking see
1: i mean and that's the other thing about venice is that you know they keep saying it's sinking which I guess it's not actually sinking, but the tide is, you know, washing away, and the Mm -hmm. the flooding is getting worse all the time. And so, the question is, how long will Venice be able to survive? Yeah, it's built on mud, really. Yeah.
0: As you've no doubt noticed, we haven't run advertising on this show for a long time. We did for a while, which helped tremendously, but it started to become another job, trying to land a new advertiser for weeks or months, writing scripts. When I stressed the unique nature of the show and how different it was from everything else, the advertisers were more interested in seeing numbers for satisfying return on their investment, which I don't blame them for but I made the choice to stop pursuing advertisers because I never felt really comfortable seeing you as just a number. I've heard too many stories of how this show has helped change your lives and inspired you to begin or continue pursuing your dream for a photographic life. While I would love to have a generous endowment, I would want it to be from someone who gets what we do and really believes in it. But until that happens, I'm reliant on you to support the work we do with the podcast. So if you've been listening and haven't yet supported the show financially, please consider doing it today. Help us to increase our supporters from just 3% to 5% by contributing as little as $5 a month to our Patreon effort. It's a small amount, but it makes a huge difference. So visit patreon.com forward slash the candid frame and become a Patreon supporter today. So as you said, you didn't want to just create another book of pictures of Venice because it's been done by other people before. And the images do have a very sort of distinct look. Tell me about sort of finding your visual voice and coming to the point where you knew that, oh, this this is going to work for me. This is going to express what I'm feeling about the, the city in my time there.
1: So I came back from that first trip and I shot you know, sort of from morning till night. And I felt like I had gotten something. I felt like something had sort of clicked and I had been able to shoot it the way I wanted to and see it the way I I wanted to. But I certainly then, you know, did a a ton of editing and work on the images and then, you know, went back the following year and and shot more and was trying, was always looking for kind of the ethereal Venice, basically, (laughs) looking for something that looked otherworldly. I have to even say that in the beginning, I didn't want people to know it was Venice. I had taken pictures on side streets and things, but, you know, there's sort of no way to avoid it looking like Venice. Yeah. And, and in the end, of course, I want people to know. But it was uh, really trying to as I find, find this historical but also ethereal Venice.
0: You call it Lost Venice. Why?
1: I think because not only was I lost, but getting lost in Venice is one of the most fun things you can possibly do. And so I feel like it was about loss and it was about a Venice that doesn't exist anymore.
0: How many times did you go back?
1: So for the project, I went back three times and photographed it. Yeah. And and spent um, 10 days, um, probably each time. So, but I'd known Venice you know i knew it but it wasn't it was a city that was familiar to me in a way so i could go back and go right into the project and kind of go right out i actually took boats out to outlying islands and you know sort of would f- go find sort of really out of the way places which was really fun
0: so tell me about putting it together into a body of work what was the challenge there
1: i was saying that that to put things into a book makes it so permanent and it's also really the end i mean not that i haven't really been shooting this project for a while But there's a finality to it that as a photographer, you can always rework things, you know, especially with Photoshop and with new papers and new inks and new printers and everything coming out. You kind of I know there are there is there are finite decisions you make, but a book is really finite. I mean, to make it to put it together and sequence it and try to let it talk say what you want it to say in a way and in a manner that you want it to say is was difficult. I made a handmade book first of it, actually, with Douglas Stockdale. He helped me quite a bit. And I remember him just saying in the beginning, like, oh, just look at some books, but you know, you really, and it's like a whole new language, books yeah. are a new language. And even though I own hundreds of photography books, I haven't really analyzed them in the same way you would analyze a photograph. You know, you, I hadn't really looked at what does the paper look like and how big are the images on the paper and, you know, what's the sequencing like and it's typeface and all these questions that come into play. So it's, you know, it's like, uh, it was, it was a new language, but it was, it was an interesting project. <laughs>
0: Did the fact that it was it had such finality lead to some anxiety and procrastination on your part in terms of doing the work and making it make it all happen.
1: I would say anxiety, yes. Procrastination. Mm, I'm always super busy, so I had a designer and I was working with him, and I'd meet with him, you know, sort of once a month, and we'd talk about. It. And mostly we were talking about the sequencing, and there was a certain bit of like, well, does it look okay like this, or should we switch that picture? Should we put, you know, we just were kind of playing with it, and. I'm sure he's worked with many, many photographers, so he knows that this is the way it goes. <laughs> yeah. And as he said, they almost always come around to the beginning, you know, the first way that you do things. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like your first print, you go back, you, you try and muck things around, then you go back and you realize, like, oh, the first print was actually like pretty much on target. Yeah. There was a lot of that. And then I would say there was the end bit, which, you know, I just hadn't really thought about. The actual, like, how are the words going to be, and how is what's going to be on the cover, and, you know, this everything. But from the beginning, I knew the size, and I knew sort of the, I'd given him maybe 30 pictures to work with, and he sequenced them pretty masterfully, I want to say. I had made a a couple of tweaks here and there.
0: So how did you come to your 30?
1: Mm, I probably have about 50 images in the project that I love. There's probably 30 that I absolutely adored, and 22 that I, you know, he he whittled it down even further. It's probably 22 images in the book, maybe 24, I'm Mm -hmm. not It's a small book, and I was okay with that. I think that uh, I wanted it to be short and sweet and just not become redundant ever and not ever yeah. to mm-hmm. feel, um, I wanted you to enjoy each image, and that was it. So I was fine with it being small and, and short.
0: You've done a lot of other things in your career, one of them was starting a photo festival in Chicago, which I will never do, but I'm amazed at anyone who takes on, takes on, takes on that. Why
1: did you do, why did you do that? I started a festival because I needed a photography community. Ah, okay. and I didn't Know any other way to to get one, and it's a really funny story. I would not advocate it to (laughs) to anyone, it was a tremendous amount of work. Um, but like anything, you go naively into things and think, Oh, how much work can it possibly be? I had been to Photo Lucida in Portland, and I'd been to uh the Woodstock photo reviews in New York, and I thought, Why don't we have something like this in Chicago? It just seems crazy with all this talent and you know, all these people. And I didn't, I hadn't gone to school in Chicago, so I didn't really know, I didn't really have a huge photo community. Uh, At first I started as sort of a gallery and that sort of fizzled and I decided that wasn't the way to go. So I decided to do this.
0: So, did you help create a photo community for yourself as a result oh, of Oh, certainly,
1: yeah. I mean, yeah, unbelievable. So, yes, it really was. It was a great way to meet, you know, not just other photographers, but also I was terrified of curators and, you know, photo editors and people like that mm-hmm. at, until I started the festival and realized they're just... People like you and me. And uh, they you know, they were incredibly generous and kind, and people said yes right away to being reviewers, which I was stunned because pretty much it's giving up a day of your life to look at other photographs, you know, look at work, um, which they like, but some of it obviously is, you know, probably not to their liking. And people came, and it was, yeah, it just, it sort of took off, I think, because there wasn't anything like it in Chicago.
0: So what did you learn from doing that that has been invaluable to the work that you do as a photographer
1: so much i think i learned so much i mean i think i got a huge education first of all i saw unbelievable bodies of work come through the festival i met as i said curators and museum directors and museum you know photo editors and people and listen to what they had to say about work and mm-hmm. listen to their comments and things we put on exhibitions that was you know exciting and invaluable i think i learned the behind the scenes i think i've always been interested in you know even when i worked at museums i like i like knowing what the behind the scenes are in in things i like to understand it before i you know sort of get out in front so that was kind of i learned the behind the scenes
0: I would think that it also teaches you how to be a good marketer because that's been part oh. of your role at l a c p oh, yes. it has t- t- been doing t- that so let's let's talk about that because you created a book and people think oh that the book is gonna you know fly into the shelves of people all over the world, and you know that's that's just another part of the hard work that lies ahead, and marketing and promoting yourself is a completely different beast so let's let's talk about what you've learned in terms of that, not only from your work at the festival, but all the other roles that you've played?
1: Uh, I have learned a lot about marketing. And I will say that that was also just completely invaluable because, you know, you see what people do uh, certainly coming through the festival, people that are rising to the top. I mean, there were certainly people who came through as graduate students or undergraduates and then who eventually ended up getting, you know, major exhibitions and shows. And I saw what, how they presented themselves and how they promoted themselves and I want to say that just learning that marketing is a huge part of being a photographer, being a fine art photographer. You have to just be out there, and you have to be willing to meet people everywhere, and talk to them about your work, and and be in as many shows, and just yes, get get as much, I guess, out in front of people in, in, as you possibly can. Which doesn't leave you a lot of time to make work, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, I find I spend yeah. a lot of time marketing and. And unfortunately, that I have to sort of carve out days to make work now because, yeah, it's it's just a huge part of the job.
0: Yeah, yeah. because there's talent alone is not enough. You can be the most amazing, talented artist of any genre, but if you're not able to sell yourself and pitch yourself out there, it really makes it difficult to be able to, you know, create a life that revolves around your art. Yeah. You, know, you you can be happy with just making the art. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think a lot of people aspire to having an audience of yeah. their, their photographs, their paintings, their, their plays, whatever it is. It doesn't seem like you're very uh, much of a wallflower. But that from my my time with you, you seem to be very energetic about getting out there and putting the word out. That, is that something that just came naturally to you or is that something you had to learn?
1: Mm, I've never been an introvert, so i don't think I think it came naturally to me to be curious about other people and to want to meet other people and as i said i I started a festival because I didn't really have a photo community. I only mm-hmm. knew a handful of photographers at the time when I started it so that's um all been you know part of I guess who I am, which has been you know i guess helpful, but I agree with you that it's just putting yourself out there is just you ha- you just have to i mean I used to hate having exhibitions. I hate to say, I mean, I wanted to get them and then I would get them. And then I hated going to them because I hated standing in front of my work and talking about yeah. it. And I've just learned, you just learn to get over that. You just learn, you have to, you have to learn to get over yourself and, and also to get over yourself about everything, you know, just to move on to the next thing or project or idea or whatever it is uh, and not dwell too much on, you know, what you haven't been doing or what you've said or what you've done or...
0: Yeah, last last winter they had the uh, portfolio reviews done here mm-hmm. uh, in LA, which they have every every year, and that you're involved with. And you see a lot of people come through there, and you get a chance to talk to uh, the people who did the reviews afterwards because there's like little parties and little <laughs> gatherings, and I'm sure that a lot of the people who went in for the portfolio reviews are always very curious as what the people said you know at the end of the day so what are the things that you've heard discussed that you think are invaluable for people to know wherever they decide to take a, do a portfolio review
1: Mm, That's such an interesting question. I mean, I would say that the reviewers are, you know, they don't dish too much about stuff. If somebody's really, let's see, if some work is really fantastic, they'll certainly talk about it. If some work is really, it's not the work, but if the person, and I would say that it's really, they're judging the whole package. So your work could be, you know, you could be just starting out, but if you're too aggressive or too, you know, sort of demanding or, or not put together, they'll certainly notice that, Mm -hmm. um, and, and comment on that. They would never comment on somebody who's just starting out, though. I mean, you know, everybody starts yeah. somewhere. So I want to say that most of the reviewers realize that. And I think that's one thing that even I didn't know, you know, that, you know, you just have to start somewhere. You Everybody starts somewhere, right? You just have whatever you have as your portfolio and you learn as you go along. I went to Photo Lucida, and I didn't know what I was doing there. I mean, I had 16 (laughs) reviews, and it was my first reviews. Wow,
0: 16.
1: Yeah, and I had never, nobody had ever told me about what, you know, what do you say, what do you do? I mean, I'd been to one little tiny review beforehand, but you learn. You you learn from everybody else, and you just learn, and and then you go to the next review, and you learn something new, and you're better at that, that, so.
0: So so as a tip, what's in because you'll get different opinions from different from different people, right? And sometimes it can be very contradictory. Mm-hmm. And I think when people first are starting out, they're thinking that these people know what they're talking about, and they, and they go there with the hope that they'll get some definitive advice as to what to do next. But when you get contradictory opinions and advice, you can be just as lost as you were at the beginning. So... How does someone who's in that spot come to be more discerning and and have an idea in terms of how they process all all of what they've heard? Um, I know that's a big question. No, but,
1: no, that is a big question. I'm trying to think of a of a of a concise answer. I would say that. For one thing, you know, Catherine Edelman, who runs a gallery in Chicago, probably one of the the best galleries in Chicago, she once said, you know, I'm just one person. It's just my taste. It's my opinion. So, you know, you have to remember that the person sitting across the table from you, it's not the be all and end all, right? You Mm -hmm. have to remember that, you know, there's people like, you know... Herman Melville, who didn't he send out his, you know, Moby Dick a thousand times, or not a thousand, but, you know, 50 times. And, and, you know, there's famous authors who, you know, famously were rejected, you know, 49 times, and on the 50th, they got in. Not to say that you shouldn't listen to the advice, if you get it. I mean, I always say to people, if you hear the same thing more than two or three times, you probably should believe it. Um <laughs> yeah. If people don't give you enough information, you should ask for it. If they're not being hard enough, and I should not mean hard, but if they're not being precise with their critique of your work enough, you should ask for it. You have to be thick-skinned, as unfortunately, and it's mm-hmm. really hard when you're starting out because, yes, there's that little balance between you don't know if you're any good and you don't know if you've got any talent or any anything, and yet you want people to sort of fall down and, or stopped in their tracks when they see it and, and tell you it's the be all and end all, which is never going to happen or has never happened while I've been at a review. So, mm-hmm. and, and that's not to say I haven't seen unbelievably brilliant work. It's just that part of what they're looking at for you is how committed are you to staying in the game? Yeah. yeah. Because if you show amazing work, but this is your first review and you just made the work, they want to see that you're going to be around in a year and that you're going to continue to make more of this work. And they're really looking for longevity. They're looking for staying power. They're looking for you to be have the confidence and the uh, the wherewithal to stick with it.
0: Dan Milner has a a story. I don't know if you don't know Dan, but um, Dan has a a story about when he was at a portfolio review and he was doing reviews. Rather than just being just another opinion, when when the people came with their portfolios, they would try to open them and he said no. And he would just ask them the question, why are you here? And he said so many people had a difficult time answering that question, but that's a question you need to know the answer to. Because I think it really helps in terms of being able to process whatever feedback that you get. You know, if you kind of know why you're there, you'll have a better understanding of what you probably need to hear or what you're looking for. Yeah. You know, it's going to be a little more specific rather than just like... I'll take anything and everything.
1: Yeah, I you know? mean, I think most people. I would say, sort of, what is your definition of success? Like, what what is it ultimately that you're looking for in with your photography? Because even when you ask that, you think you know what people want to want, but they all want different things. So you know, you it's good to know yourself, right? How what you what you're looking for, what you want out of your photography.
0: So why why do you why do you keep doing it?
1: <laughs> I knew you were going to ask that question. <laughs> You know it's funny. I recently saw a friend I hadn't seen in maybe twenty something years, and he said i i can't b-, and he was a painter way back when, and he he's long since given it up, and he said to me, "You stuck with it, and I said it never occurred to me to stop it really never did." Yeah. I can't imagine a world without art and not a world without not being able to make make art. So I think that's, you know, I make it because I have to in a lot of ways and because I love it. I mean, I look at photographs all day long, not mine. I look at other people's and I'm fascinated whenever I see things and I'm I'm excited when I go to exhibitions and I go to museums and I see work. I, I love looking at art. So I think I love thinking about what to make next and how I can make it and, you know, and just... If I had enough time, what would I do with all this time? And yet, yeah. you know, it's it's just, it's it's thrilling. I yeah. don't know what else to say about it. I mean, you know, of course, the accolades are nice along the way. And, and I think that keeps you going. That's what I would say. Of course, you know, I think it's hard to just live in a vacuum and not, you know, never show your work to anybody because I can't imagine that you would just Derive enough pleasure from just making it. I think that along the way, you do like a few pats on the back and a few things yeah. saying like, "Okay, this is this is good."
0: My answer may be a little hyperbolic, but I think of it as it's my life life preserver in the sea of my own psyche. Mm. You yes, because I've got so much noise in my head and so many distractions. A lot, and you know, my my mind veers towards the negative in a variety of different ways. And takes me into the past, takes me into the future, and creating work is the only thing that keeps me present and keeps me thankful. And it's it's the, it's the it's the thing that gets that writes the boat, you know, and keeps me provides a healthy perspective for me day to day. And I think that's why I get a little crazy when I, when it's too long and I haven't been creating something, yeah, because I lose complete perspective on not just creating art but just you know my place in the universe mm-hmm. and you know there's probably a simpler way of describing it but right now that's about as accurate as i can that's a great I description
1: i thought that was lovely you know so
0: because otherwise that'd be a crazy am M-
1: <laughs> i think a lot of artists would be crazy without art i think it really helps i think it helps everyone
0: so when do you, you know you, you you mentioned earlier that you've had the chance to interact with so many different artists and amazing photographers and you know we're always very bad about making comparisons you know, in terms of the value of our work and our place and not feeling like a fraud but was there was, was there a moment where you finally felt comfortable you know where you felt like oh, I, I've earned a spot here I deserve a spot in this in in this community
1: I'm trying to think of a specific moment. I mean, certainly moving to LA was a huge game changer in that I want to say I had far more access to other photographers who were doing incredible work. Even though in Chicago, I knew people, I feel like LA, everything just kind of got elevated a little bit and I started showing kind of more at a, you know, national scale and things like, I mean, there's just been so many kind of exciting moments along the way. I I always tell, I'll tell one story that was like a moment where, and this is a good one for people listening. I always sort of tell this when I talk about portfolio reviews that um, there's a little gallery in New York called the Robin Rice Gallery. It's in the West Village. It's been there for years. And I really loved this gallery. It shows pretty much black and white photography, although she shows some color, but a lot of black and white. And it's a beautiful, tiny little gallery. And... I started sending her, you know, slides back when we had two big Uh, copy slides of our work. This is probably in like 90, no, yeah, 2000, I can't remember. And then I, you know, I put her on my mailing list and I would write to her. And she wrote me back after 10 years, she wrote Uh. me and put me in a show. And I didn't even know she knew my, my name, but obviously somewhere along the line, these postcards and these, you know, things. Yeah. And so I always say to people, you know, it takes a long time. You got to be in it for the long haul because you just never know what's going to happen.
0: It takes what it takes.
1: It takes what it takes. Yeah. But yeah, I think that was a moment of, that was a moment of personal achievement of just, you know, my marketing achievement of 10 years of, you know, <laughs> going after this gallery and, uh, and finally, uh, yeah, being in a show there. But I think showing my work in Paris was, you know, has been extraordinary for the last mm-hmm. couple of years. And, and really, and seeing Paris photo, which is, you know, just Mecca. I mean, it's really unbelievable. And there's, you know, Sophie Kahl and Roger Ballin. And I mean, there's everybody you've ever heard of is walking mm-hmm. around. I mean, it's sort of like the Oscars for photography, I want to say. And it's, I don't know, it, it feels amazing.
0: Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that photographer be and why?
1: Oh, interesting. I have so many friends (laughs) that I would want you to interview. (sighs) Just one? Can just I one. give you more than one? <laughs> I have a whole long list. I know,
0: I know, we could be here for a long time if I did that.
1: Well, I, I will say the most—the uh, person that will give you the most entertainment and and just love talking to you—is going to be Lisa McCord.
0: Okay. What, what's special about Lisa?
1: Lisa tells stories. She tells amazing stories. So she's been photographing in the Mississippi Delta for. 30 40 years and she has incredible work from way back she's kept all of her negatives and uh and she's been printing but she also just tells great stories she really does yeah she's a great storyteller not that i know that that's what you're looking for but you know she she'd love it cool
0: well thank you so much
1: thank you thanks so much for having me
0: thanks to sarah for coming by the studio Find out more about her and her work by visiting sarahadley.com. I have several workshops coming up uh, this year. The first one is in February in Los Angeles as part of LA Street Week held by the Los Angeles Center of Photography. It's a week-long event with presentations, workshops, and exhibits. I'll be teaching a half-day workshop in Hollywood, but there will be other sessions as well conducted by other photographers. You can find out more by clicking on the link on our site or visiting Photo. Dot org. I'll be in Washington, D.C. for the Focus on the Story Festival in the fall and a Memento photographic workshop in August, as well as a week-long workshop in Tokyo in December. I'll be providing more details on these as they become available. If you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. Those reviews have led to people taking a chance on our show and allowing us to grow. Thanks to Sydney Turtle from Australia for their five-star review. Along with my recent book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, I also released my latest ebook, Nine Pictures, Nine Stories, Volume Two. The first one got a great response and I'm back with a follow-up where I discuss the stories behind nine images that I created last year. It's only $8 and your purchase is another way you can support the show. Purchase that and any of my previously published ebooks by visiting the website. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and our mailing list. On the YouTube channel, I offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you, while the mailing list keeps you updated on all TCF events, including workshops and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or donating through PayPal. Thanks to Christian Knobloch, Frank Schlussman, Michael Beecham, Stephen Wimberly, Lars Hegard, Timothy Floyd... Philip Shuset and Minzal Mira. I really appreciate this. And if you found that you can't find every episode of the show on whatever platform you listen to podcasts, download the Candra Frame app, which is available for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases required. The Candor Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other martintaylor.com, the show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty free music can be found at Incompetech.com. And this is X and this is the Candor Frame.